Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Rachel Robichotti and Adesina Social Capital believe in bold, decisive action to make large-scale systemic change throughout the financial system. This requires the interlocking of four levers, people, investments, campaigns, and education. Adesina works with community social justice organizations to define the criteria that guide the firm's investments. Adesina then mobilizes other investors to partner through campaigns that amplify the voices of impacted populations throughout the financial system. Community-sourced impact data sets the standards for how companies and governments are measured in relation to racial, gender, economic, and climate justice. Investors then seek both financial and social returns by investing in public companies that are accountable to the well-being of the people and planet they impact. And Rachel will explain for our followers how this all works. Hello, Rachel, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's our pleasure to have you join us. I know we've been working at this for a while to make it happen. So how does Adesina harness the power of the current economic system to drive results for investors in the public markets? Well, that's a really packed sentence, isn't it? So yeah, (laughs) it's like harness the power of current economic system. Um, So I guess I'll just break it down a bit. I want to start by saying that Adesina is an impact investing firm. And in my over 20 years of experience, it's really important whenever a firm has an impact investment focus to really ask them about their investment thesis and their impact thesis. And what you're hearing in that um, sentence, which came from our website about harnessing the power of the current economic system, really speaks to both our investment thesis and our impact thesis. And I think that's really how we should be evaluating impact investors generally. So just to look at the investment thesis briefly, what we believe is that social justice movements, so those are our movements for racial, gender, economic, and climate justice, those movements are giving us early indicators of risk that investors can benefit from if they use the right metrics or ways of measuring and the right data. So I can talk a bit more about that in a moment, but I want to touch on the impact thesis And our impact thesis is based deeply in our view of the world that we're in right now. But in a nutshell, we believe that um, we must transition from a system of extractive capitalism to a new economy that's based in the truth of our interconnectedness of life on this planet, interconnectedness with each other and humans' interconnectedness with the living world. Um, That impact thesis underneath it believes that those who are currently in power are the best positioned to facilitate that transition. And we carry a belief that investors and public markets are are in a very powerful position. And remember I said earlier that that speaks to kind of our view of the world. So I'll break that down just a little bit. We believe that we are in a system of extractive capitalism, which just means that we're in a system that for hundreds of years has been based on the colonization um, of other places 
and also on extracting natural resources from the planet. And both of those kind of assumed that extracting from other human beings and extracting from the planet was something that could be done sustainably. And we're all learning now, uh, whether it's because of social justice movements that have emerged where communities are saying enough, or whether it's specifically because we're running out of our resources on the natural world and harming our own living environment, we're all coming to an understanding that that extractive capitalism model doesn't work because we're so interconnected with one another in the world. So in extractive capitalism, wealth is power. It's the power to shape society. But since most of that wealth was created by extraction and exclusion, so things like slavery, land theft, kind of unsustainable extraction from the planet, um, that's been done in ways that are bad long-term for all people on the planet. And public companies are where most of our wealth as human beings is held. And so it's inside of public companies and those who own them, that is those investors in public markets, we are the ones who have a lot of power to shape society. And we haven't been fully stepping into our power for a very long time. And Adacino represents a vehicle for investors stepping fully into their power. So we not only implement this investment and impact thesis in our own portfolio, we believe that what we can do in our own portfolio is admirable. Like, sure, let's say we identify all of the extractive agriculture in our own portfolio, but it does very little for the well-being of people on the planet if we aren't doing peer organizing and mobilization. So what we do is we strategically share certain data sets with other investors and bring them into these large multi-billion, some as large as a half trillion dollar investor coalitions to work on making change in specific areas. Okay. So Adesina identifies itself as a regenerative and inclusive investment firm. Please give our audience more details on what you mean by that, the, by using those terms. Well, thankfully, I gave a, a bit of an explanation about the investing in the impact thesis. So that's a really great place to start um, and, and kind of go back to that idea of regenerative. Regenerative is based on this idea of being interconnected with the living world. And regenerative means that we aren't trying to extract the maximum possible value, for example, from our employees. We want to pay them and generate an, a firm in which it's a balanced, regenerative, meaning that what leaves the system is in proportion to what's put back into the system. So we, on an internal basis, invest in our staff. We have social justice partners that work with us to identify the metrics and data. We invest in them as well. We ensure that they have funding. We pay them for their time. And our the products that we put out in the world um, are certainly not wildly expensive, but they are priced on the premium end of investment products because what people are buying into is something that's regenerative. So if something's regenerative, that means that what goes into the system or like the expense ratio on our ETF, for example, has to actually cover the costs of doing this work right. So when we talk about regenerative, we're kind of saying like, okay, we're we're not going to be kind of like extracting unsustainably from our partners, from our staff. Um, and then also being inclusive, we're over 50% Black, Indigenous, and people of color owned and operating staff. Our portfolio management teams are majority. Um, BIPOC is the acronym for the Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Uh, so we're majority BIPOC. 
women and gender expansive and majority LGBTQ um, in every level of the firm of, like I said, ownership, operating staff, down to the portfolio management teams as well. And the belief about that is not only that that's what the market's asking for, but we believe that what we're trying to do here with demonstrating a way to transition to a more inclusive, um, more regenerative, as I mentioned before, interconnected economy, that that's going to take the brilliance of many different people with perspectives that haven't yet been in finance. So being inclusive is actually something that we think is totally necessary to reach our goals. We need all of the perspectives that we can get at the table in order to accomplish this uh, monumental task. Yes, I completely agree with you, Rachel, and that's been my um, perspective on sustainable finance in general for over 20 years as well, is that it's it's a very collaborative effort, and that's the only way that it's going to succeed and change the infrastructures that, uh, that it's addressing. Now, your theory of change states that transformed systems are best created by people outside of traditional power structures who carry new perspectives. Uh, You've talked about this somewhat already, but how does that theory of change for long-term value creation um, interface with the very traditional power structures currently in the financial markets? Well, I I would have to say that it actually, um, there are ways that it's extremely useful and it interacts well with the traditional power structures and financial markets. And there are some deep challenges. So I just want to talk about like what the big benefit is first. Sure. It It is my direct experience. And there are many who've come before me who also will tell you that power has an inherent blind spot in it. And uh, I mean, this is very clear, whether you're looking at power differences in class, you know, if you watch Downton Abbey or Upstairs, Downstairs or any of those kind of like very class focused um, uh, shows, like what you often notice, and this has been true for ages, is that those who are in the one down power position tend to know everything about the environment that they're in, as well as what's happening with the higher ups. And the higher ups are often just not as aware, right? Because they don't have the necessity of being aware of the entire landscape and anyone above them. So what's interesting is that I've seen in my own experience as a CEO that um, I have a perspective, right? Being at the top of an organization, I have a perspective, but I can't possibly know what those who are closest to the work know. So power can have this kind of inherent blindness, kind of having the big picture can preclude you from seeing the smaller picture, which has some really critical details in it. So when we take people who have traditionally been left out of finance. So we're talking about BIPOC folks, women and gender expansive, LGBTQ people. When we bring those people in, we're bringing people into our firm who are from the communities that have been closest to some of the harms of extractive capitalism, but farthest away from the power. So what we're doing is essentially bringing them directly into the power center and saying, what would you do differently? So we're doing with our own staff what's pretty similar to um, what we do with our social justice partners, which is say, hey, you're close to the problem, haven't been close to the power. Let's bring you right into the middle so that we can eliminate our blind spots and see more clearly how to achieve our vision right, of just and inclusive, uh, a just and inclusive economy. Now, that sounds great, but what it doesn't do uh, is it, it doesn't look like 
what due diligence experts are looking for. If you show up to a due diligence meeting with a room full of black and brown bodies and people with um, who are women and gender expansive and clearly queer people, instantly inside of that you know researcher, most researchers' mind, we look different from most of the asset management firms that they see. And so in our industry, and I know you know this, Paul, from having done this work for many years, in our industry, um, we tend to see deviations first as errors. So if something's different, it's wrong. And so when we show up in a room and we look unlike anyone's kind of ever seen before, when our teams show up, we get asked a lot more questions because I think something, it's not necessarily um, intentional bias, but there's something kind of happening behind the scenes where it's like, you don't look right. I have more questions for you. And so what that's one of the reasons that I and some other BIPOC asset managers created the due diligence 2.0 commitment. Mm. And uh, you can find that online at uh, duediligencecommitment.com. And it goes through these nine principles to take the systemic bias out of your process of assessing asset managers while still meeting a fiduciary obligation. And I really think that set of principles became necessary because while we've done this very inclusive thing by bringing non-traditional folks into the room, that sometimes triggers the like something's wrong here uh, um, kind of message that can go off in the brains of those who are doing uh, due diligence. And it's been really wonderful to have asset allocators, including financial planners, sign it and then engage with us differently in the due diligence process in a way that's a lot more equitable. Well, please send us a link uh, where we can go ourselves to participate and at the same time can be attached to this program within the the podcast channel so that our listeners and our followers can do the same uh, and at least review what's available to them. And uh, I certainly understand the the perspective that you're presenting in terms of uh, being different uh, because that's one of the beginning points, at least it has been for me throughout my career, of evaluating the people that I enjoy and get the most out of working with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I search for the different. I search for people who are not uh-huh. doing the same old thing. Uh, and that's just, that's just me as a person. But I, Hey, and I think that means you probably have more fun in your work too. But well, it must be hard to find because almost 99% of the asset manager industry is owned by white males with firms, you know, they're, who they hire is very similar as well. So you've had a hard task. And finding different. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's also it's incredibly rewarding to meet uh, all of the different kinds of people who are, in many cases, um, frankly, better than the folks in the normal and traditional infrastructure because they think more broadly and they are more inclusive in their own approach to how they look at investment and um, value building over time. So, tell our listeners now. Uh, about a strategic investor campaign that Adesina has been involved in that has ensured value alignment with impacted communities. That would, I think that would help people uh, get a, 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 a more of a grasp on, on wh- how your firm actually does this on a day-to-day right. basis. Yeah. So um, one of my favorite stories to tell is uh, came out of the Me Too movement in 2018. And this was when we were still 
um, creating what would become uh, Addisena Social Capital. We were, it was an, a social justice investing strategy inside of our wealth management firm. Um, and we had this same idea that those closest to the problem but farthest from the power can give us really important data and metrics that we can use in our portfolios and that we can use as investors to make change. So the Me Too movement starts, right? And it's all about these primarily women um, who are in positions uh, in which someone is taking advantage of their power and they have experienced sexual assault um, or harassment at work. So it's an issue of workplace safety. The investment industry very quickly responds to the fact that investors want to do something about this. And this was really the beginning of gender lens investing getting very popular. So many different um, gender forward um, portfolios came to market. Interestingly enough, if you did a little digging and you looked at what those gender lens portfolios or gender impact portfolios were focusing on, um, they were attempting to be responsive to the Me Too movement by having this kind of gender-focused portfolio, but it was only loosely related to the core problem. So the core problem was like workplace safety, sexual harassment, and assault, and it being and it happening often with this like serial perpetuators of the harm. And what investors had created portfolios based on was the number of women on corporate boards. And there's no correlation between how many women are on a corporate board and whether or not there's serial sexual harassment that's prevalent at a public company. Um, it, certainly, gender representation on boards of directors is extremely important. Again, we just talked about diverse perspectives, so it's not as though it's unimportant. But it really didn't address the core problem. And we and our investors knew that. So we decided to go and talk to survivors of serial workplace harassment and assault. We talked to gender justice organizations across the country and those survivors. And they told us, you know, these, these portfolios that are all about women on the boards and these campaigns to get more women on the boards, like it's really nice, but it's not giving us what we need. What, what really stopped us from being able to address these issues when we were at work was something called a forced arbitration policy that applied to any sexual harassment claims. And it said, listen, employee, if you have a problem with the company or someone working for the company, you have promised ahead of time that you won't go to court. What you'll do is you'll go to like basically a private court proceeding that's legal and binding and private. It's, it's very private, right? Um, there's a confidentiality piece there. And it says that you'll work it out with this private arbitrator. Now, what most people don't know is that private arbitration cases break 85% in favor of the employer. And what happens in a sexual harassment claim when the employer pays the same arbitrator again and again and mostly wins is that the victim is silenced, so they can't talk to their coworkers or anyone else publicly about what's going on. They win. That also means that the serial harasser or perpetrator of the harm is shielded. And so when we talked to those people, they said, you know, it's mostly women, it's mostly African-American workers, and it's mostly low-wage workers that are impacted by forced arbitration clauses. And it's these forced arbitration clauses when it comes to sexual harassment that are allowing this to continue. And we said, great, now we know what metric to use. Where's the data? Mm -hmm. And they said, wouldn't it be great if we knew which public companies were using this and which, you know, which weren't? 
Um, and it turns out that there was no data. So we part we created an investor coalition and partnered with social justice organizations to come up with a very powerful data set that we shared publicly. We were the first to put it in our own portfolio that showed whether companies had um, gotten rid of this forced arbitration for sexual harassment policy um, or not. So we were the first to incorporate it in a portfolio. It's very important to go first in our industry. There's a big rush to go second, but you have to prove that something can actually work from an investment standpoint. Yes. Um, so we were the first to incorporate it. Um, we also contacted 3,600 um, of the public companies in the United States where this would apply when we started contacting companies uh, with our $54 billion um, investor coalition, telling them that we want to know what their stand was and like these are the reasons why their stand should be to eliminate the policy, um, we had a handful of companies, just a handful of companies that were willing to let it go in light of the Me Too movement and be public about it. When we ended that campaign, which was December of 2021, um, we ended it because we started to advise at the highest levels of policymaking. We had 396 companies by that time that had changed their status. That represented over 10 million workers that could then openly take their harasser or abuser to court, weren't silenced right into this process that would advantage the abuser right, and the company. Um, and that represented over 10 million workers who let, whose lives were impacted. Um, in early 2022, in February, there was bipartisan le legislation that was passed to ban forced arbitration for sexual harassment. Um, and many of the lawmakers referenced our data set and the fact that investors were on the side of eliminating this very harmful policy. So that was a huge win, not only for women in the workplace, but also for African-American workers and low-wage workers that were disproportionately impacted. And I have to tell you, if we had just done this on our own portfolio and kept quiet about it, we wouldn't have had that huge systemic impact. That's why I was saying our most important thing is for us to stand in our, in our very real power as investors in public markets and share some of that data and bring other investors along. So I really encourage anyone who feels inspired by that story, sign up for our newsletter and we will definitely tell you how to get involved with the many campaigns that we're running um, that we intend to have very similar results with. Thank you so much for that example, Rachel. I think that that's a, a big part of what I encounter and in, in sustainable finance in general is that so many people feel that way and want to do the right things and want to get involved with collaborative efforts to do so. And many people don't know where to start. So again, if you can provide us with links to stories or, or data where we can uh, put that into the podcast program, what's available for people to do research on afterwards, we'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'll put in the link where we tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Now, Rachel, we're about out of time for today. Uh, we'll have to continue this conversation in the future, but tell us where online our followers can learn more about Adesina Social Capital and how can they reach you with questions about the issues that we've discussed in today's program. Well, the easiest way, <clears throat> if you're listening to this, is text the word justice to 55444. And that will lead you through a very easy process of adding yourself mm -hmm. to our mailing list. We only send out emails about once per month. We're not spammers. We don't share your information. So you can feel really comfortable doing that. It's, uh, again, texting justice to 55444. 
1-800-273-6444. And I'm also going to be putting some of the information that we have about our investment products. Um, we have uh, Addisina has an exchange traded fund that focus, focuses specifically on these and is available everywhere stocks are. Um, so we'll make sure that all of that information is in the show notes. Um, but I think that signing up for our newsletter kind of email list is probably the best way to get started. Terrific. Well, many thanks to Rachel Robichotti, founder and CEO at Adesina Social Capital. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Mm-hmm.